Blog Good evening. Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening on the Guest of Freedom, coming to you over www.blogtalkradio.com. I want to remind our listeners that these shows are archived and available for free via iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Tonight we're going to continue our reading of the William Steele book. Uh, Tonight we'll be listening to a reunion of the blind father. And uh, we'll be talking about the Roswell schools here as well, started by Booker T. Washington. Also, I want to remind you that it would behoove you to send a friend request to our executive producer, Lillian Gist. on our Facebook page, and that would be Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, yes, G-I-S-T, yes, Leslie, yes, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at Facebook. Send her a friend request. Also, you can watch the video of the Rosenwald School, uh, on the YouTubes. Uh, Leslie has a YouTube. Just go to YouTube and put in Leslie Gist, G-I-S-T. And uh, again, we will be reading and listening to the William Steele book. That address for YouTube is youtube.com backslash the gist of freedom. All one word, the gist of freedom. Uh, Speaking of that um, Facebook page, if you were a friend of hers, you can okay, I just gave you the YouTube address. And you can read about and listen to the Rosenwald, that's R-O-S-E-N-W-A-L-D, Rosenwald Schools, uh, founded by um, Booker T. Washington. And I believe that was the first uh, school for blacks established in Washington, D.C. want to read you... Um, 
just a bit from the Facebook page um, in reference to a blind father who is at the Underground Railroad Depot uh, in 1857. About the latter part of December 1857, Isaac and Edmondson brothers succeeded in making their escape together from Petersburg, Virginia. They barely escaped the auction block as their mistress, Mrs. Ann Colley, a widow, had just completed arrangements for their sale on the coming first day of January. And this kind of property, however, Miss Colley had not largely invested in the days of her prosperity. While all was happy and contented, she could not boast of forehead. These brothers, Jackson, Isaac, Edmondson, and one other. Okay. So that was just a little tidbit from um, the um, an excerpt from the Underground Railroad by William Steele. And uh, I'm going to pull up something here on the Rosenwald School. And uh, read a little bit from that as well. And we'll be pulling it up here in just a minute. The Rosenwald Schools, established by Booker T. Washington, and the first African-American school for children, established in Washington, D.C., if memory serves me correct. And uh, still trying to get the text up here on my screen. Also, our executive producer can be reached via email at Leslie, again, that's L E S L E Y, at the gift of freedom.com. You can also reach me there at that email address. My address is Preston at the gift of freedom dot com. Having a little technical difficulty here. get this information up here on the Rosenwald schools.
Okay. Here we go. Uh, the nation's first black public school, and it was called the Paul Lon- Lawrence Dunbar High, opened in 1870 in Washington, D.C., and it was opened by Booker T. Washington and philanthropist Julius Rosenwald. And that helped, with his help, they established 5,000 schools. They matched school building funds in 5,000 communities in the rural south. There's been a renewed interest in the Rosenwald schools. It's currently responsible for the preservation of these historical schools. A lot of information had been lost, but now the interest has uh, been renewed. And Washington and Rosenwald first met in 1911. Rosenwald and his wife traveled to visit Tuskegee Institute later that year. A month later, Rosenwald joined the board of directors of Tuskegee, and he remained on the board for the rest of his life. And Mr. Rosenwald had money. Washington had knowledge and contacts. In 1912, the two agreed to work together to construct public schools for black students. They first decided to create six schools near Tuskegee as a pilot project. Over the years, the number of schools grew and spread throughout the entire South. They had an extreme dedication to quality. All Rosenwald schools were built to specifications for size, ventilation, windows, and other properties. It was a Tuskegee Institute architects who developed the plans, and some of those schools were built by Tuskegee students. After Washington died, the quality control suffered a bit, Rosenwald then created the Rosenwald Fund to oversee school, uh, the school construction. And a lot of self-help was then required from the various communities. And Mr. Rosenwald did not simply give money to people to build schools. He required people in each locality to show how much they wanted the school. They had to raise money or contribute labor. They also had to convince the local white government to contribute money. Rosenwald actually provided the smallest amount of money, about $4.4 million. State and local governments gave over $18 million. Local people raised about $6 million, $4.7 million from blacks and $1.2 million from whites. Um, and a lot of those were already contributing to Rosenwald schools because they, uh, besides what they already paid in taxes for public schools. By the time of Rosenwald's death, and this was in 1932, about one-third of black students in the South were attending Rosenwald schools. In addition to 4,977 schools, Rosenwald contributed to 217 homes to teachers. He also established 163 machine shops where students learn practical skills. North Carolina had the most Rosenwald schools at 813. That's 813 Rosenwald schools in North Carolina. Strangely enough, Julius Rosenwald himself never finished high school. 
but he gave millions of dollars to education. He also gave a great deal of money to other causes, including Jewish charities. He was a main donor to establish the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, Illinois. So, what happened to the Rosenwald schools? Well, at the 1954 Supreme Court order to integrate public schools meant that black students moved to white schools. And, of course, many Rosenwald schools, therefore, were abandoned. Today, most of those schools have been destroyed or have fallen into disrepair. Some remain. In 2002, the National Trust for Historic Preservation listed the Rosenwald schools as endangered places. They are now used as schools, community centers, senior citizen centers, and museums. In June 2012, the National Trust held a conference. The name of that conference was 100 Years of Pride, Progress, and Preservation, featuring education missions, or sessions, documentary films, tour, and, and national speakers. Very powerful legacy uh, that they left. A wealthy Jewish businessman who believed in social justice and a former slave who believed in the power of education to uplift his brethren. Over 600,000 African Americans received good educations in the Rosenwald Elementary and High Schools. Many went from there, went on to college, vocational training, made important contributions to their community and to their country. And um, you can find out more about that at www.abhmuseum.org. And our source on that was Stephanie Duch from the, the work you made at Schoolhouse, Booker T. Washington, Julius Rolls Ball, and the building of schools for the segregated South. That's from the Northwestern University Press, 20,011. Now, we're going to go on to the reading here of the William Steele book, published in 1871, called The Underground Railroad. Very meticulous and detailed uh, narrative featuring... Uh, escapes from the south along the underground railroad. We'll be getting that queued up here in just a minute. Um, if you have questions or comments... Section 29 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. The Underground Railroad, Part 1 by William Still... Section 29, Robert Brown, Anthony Loney, and Cornelius Scott, Samuel Williams. Robert Brown, alias Thomas Jones, crossing the river on horseback in the night. In very desperate straits, many new inventions were sought after by deep-thinking and resolute slaves, determined to be free at any cost. But it must here be admitted that, in looking carefully over the more perilous methods resorted to, Robert Brown, alias Thomas Jones, stands second to none with regard to deeds of bold daring. 
This hero escaped from Martinsburg, Virginia, in 1856. He was a man of medium size, mulatto, about 38 years of age, could read and write, and was naturally sharp-witted. He had formerly been owned by Colonel John F. Franey, whom Robert charged with various offenses of a serious domestic character. Furthermore, he also alleged that his mistress was cruel to all the slaves, declaring that they, the slaves, could not live with her, that she had to hire servants, etc. In order to effect his escape, Robert was obliged to swim the Potomac River on horseback on Christmas night while the cold wind, storm, and darkness were indescribably dismal. This daring bondman, rather than submit to his oppressor any longer, periled his life as above stated. Where he crossed the river was about a half-mile wide. Where could be found in history a more noble and daring struggle for freedom? The wife of his bosom and his four children, only five days before he fled, were sold to a trader in Richmond, Virginia, for no other offense than simply because she had resisted the lustful designs of her master, being true to her own companion. After this poor slave mother and her children were cast into prison for sale, the husband and some of his friends tried hard to find a purchaser in the neighborhood, but the malicious and brutal master refused to sell her, wishing to gratify his malice to the utmost, and to punish his victims all that lay in his power. He sent them to the place above named. In this trying hour, the severed and bleeding heart of the husband resolved to escape at all hazards, taking with him a daguerreotype likeness of his wife, which he happened to have on hand, and a lock of hair from her head, and from each of the children, as mementos of his unbounded, though sundered, affection for them. After crossing the river, his wet clothing freezing to him, he rode all night, a distance of about forty miles. In the morning he left his faithful horse tied to a fence, quite broken down. He then commenced his dreary journey on foot, cold and hungry, in a strange place, where it was quite unsafe to make known his condition and wants. Thus, for a day or two, without food or shelter, he traveled until his feet were literally worn out, and in this condition he arrived at Harrisburg, where he found friends. Passing over many of the interesting incidents on the road, suffice it to say, he arrived safely in this city on New Year's night, 1857, about two hours before daybreak, the telegraph having announced his coming from Harrisburg, having been a week on the way. The night he arrived was very cold. Besides, the underground train that morning was about three hours behind time. In waiting for it, entirely out in the cold, a member of the Vigilance Committee thought he was frosted, but when he came to listen to the story of the fugitive's sufferings, his mind changed. Scarcely had Robert entered the house of one of the committee, where he was kindly received, when he took from his pocket his wife's likeness, speaking very touchingly while gazing upon it and showing it. Subsequently, in speaking of his family, he showed the locks of hair referred to, which he had carefully rolled up in paper separately. Unrolling them, he said, This is my wife's. This is from my oldest daughter, eleven years old. And this is from my next oldest. And this from the next. And this from my infant, only eight weeks old. These mementos he cherished with the utmost care as the last remains of his affectionate family. At the sight of these locks of hair so tenderly preserved, 
the members of the committee could fully appreciate the resolution of the fugitive in plunging into the Potomac on the back of a dumb beast in order to flee from a place and people who had made such barbarous havoc in his household. His wife, as represented by the likeness, was of fair complexion, prepossessing, and good-looking, perhaps not over thirty-three years of age. Anthony Loney, alias William Armstead Anthony had been serving under the yoke of Waring Talbert of Richmond, Virginia. Anthony was of a rich black complexion, medium size, about twenty-five years of age. He was intelligent and a member of the Baptist Church. His master was a member of the Presbyterian Church and held family prayers with the servants. But Anthony believed seriously that his master was no more than a whitened sepulchre, one who was fond of saying, Lord, Lord, but did not do what the Lord bade him. Consequently, Anthony felt that before the great judge, his master's many prayers would not benefit him, as long as he continued to hold his fellow men in bondage. He left a father, Samuel Loney, and mother, Rebecca, also one sister and four brothers. His old father had bought himself and was free. Likewise, his mother, being very old, had been allowed to go free. Anthony escaped in May 1857. Cornelius Scott Cornelius took passage per the Underground Railroad in March 1857 from the neighborhood of Salvington, Stafford County, Virginia. He stated that he had been claimed by Henry L. Brook, whom he declared to be a hard drinker and a hard swearer. Cornelius had been very much bleached by the patriarchal institution, and he was shrewd enough to take advantage of this circumstance. In regions of country where men were less critical and less experienced than Southerners as to how the bleaching process was brought about, Cornelius Scott would have had no difficulty whatever in passing for a white man of the most improved Anglo-Saxon type. Although a young man only 23 years of age and quite stout, his fair complexion was decidedly against him. He concluded that for this very reason he would not have been valued at more than $500 in the market. He left his mother, Ann Stubbs, and half-brother, Isaiah, and traveled as a white man. Samuel Williams, alias John Williams This candidate for Canada had the good fortune to escape the clutches of his mistress, Mrs. Elvina Duncans, widow of the late Reverend James Duncans, who lived near Cumberland, Maryland. He had very serious complaints to allege against his mistress, who was a member of the Presbyterian Church. To use his own language, the servants in the house were treated worse than dogs. John was 32 years of age, dark chestnut color, well-made, prepossessing in appearance, and he fled to keep from being sold. With the Underground Railroad, he was highly delighted. Nor was he less pleased with the thought that he had caused his mistress, who was one of the worst women who ever lived, to lose $1,200 by him. He escaped in March 1857. He did not admit that he loved slavery any the better for the reason that his master was a preacher or that his mistress was the wife of a preacher. Although a common farmhand, Samuel had common sense, and for a long time previous had been watching closely the conduct of his mistress, and at the same time had been laying his plans for escape on the Underground Railroad, the first chance. $100 reward. My Negro man Richard has been missing since Sunday night, March 22nd. I will give $100 to anyone who will secure him or deliver him to me. Richard is 30 years old, but looks older, very short legs, dark but rather bright color, broad cheekbones, a respectful and serious manner, 
generally looks away when spoken to, small moustache and beard, but he may have them off. He is a remarkably intelligent man, and can turn his hand to anything. He took with him a bag made of Brussels carpet, with my name written in large, rough letters on the bottom, and a good stock of coarse and fine clothes, among them a navy cap and a low-crowned hat. He has been seen about New Kent, C.H., and on the Pamunkey River, and is no doubt trying to get off in some vessel bound north. April 18, 1857, J. W. Randolph, Richmond, Virginia. Even at this late date, it may perhaps afford Mr. R. a degree of satisfaction to know what became of Richard. But if this should not be the case, Richard's children, or mother, or father, if they are living, may possibly see these pages, and thereby be made glad of learning of Richard's wisdom as a traveler in the terrible days of slave-hunting. Consequently, here is what was recorded of him, April 3, 1857, at the Underground Railroad Station, just before a free ticket was tendered him for Canada. Richard is thirty-three years of age, small of stature, dark color, smart and resolute. He was owned by Captain Tucker of the United States Navy, from whom he fled. He was tired of serving and wanted to marry, was the cause of his escape. He had no complaint of bad treatment to make against his owner. Indeed, he said that he had been used well all his life. Nevertheless, Richard felt that this underground railroad was the greatest road he ever saw. When the war broke out, Richard girded on his knapsack and went to help Uncle Sam humble Richmond and break the yoke. End of section 29. Recording by Lee Smalley. Okay, we're going to take a break here and queue up another uh, section of the book, The Underground Railroad, by William Steele, published in 1871. While we're waiting for that, I want to send a shout-out to Serena Williams, who won the U.S. Open today, Flushing's Medals, New York, I believe, her fifth U.S. Open win and her 17th major tournament win. She won her first uh, U.S. Open at age 17, and 14 years later, age 31, she uh, wins number five. Quite a match. Uh, she won the first match, lost the second, came back and won the third set, Six games to one. Serena Williams went pretty close to three hours in duration. And I know one of the checks they got her. We see you callers. Uh, we got you covered. And we'll be getting you in here shortly. And Serena was awarded a check, a bonus check, $2.6 million. And I want to remind her, the callers that we do see you and we'll be taking calls after the reading uh, which we're getting queued up now so hold your thoughts write down your comments or questions and we'll be ready for you as soon as we uh, finish this uh, second reading from the William Steele book Section 28 of the Underground Railroad Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. 
The Underground Railroad, Part 1 by William Sill. Section 28, Arrival of Jackson, Isaac, and Edmondson Turner from Petersburg. Touching scene on meeting their old blind father at the UGRR depot. Letters and warning to slaveholders. About the latter part of December 1857, Isaac and Edmondson, brothers, succeeded in making their escape together from Petersburg, Virginia. They barely escaped the auction block, as their mistress, Mrs. Ann Coley, a widow, had just completed arrangements for their sale on the coming first day of January. In this kind of property, however, Mrs. Coley had not largely invested. In the days of her prosperity, while all was happy and contented, she could only boast of four head, these brothers, Jackson, Isaac, and Edmondson, and one other. In May 1857, Jackson had fled and was received by the Vigilance Committee, who placed him upon their books briefly in the following light. Runaway. $50 reward. Ran away sometime in May last, my servant man, who calls himself Jackson Turner. He is about 27 years of age and has one of his front teeth out. He is quite black with thick lips, a little bow-legged, and looks down when spoken to. I will give a reward of $50 if taken out of the city and $25 if taken within the city. I forewarn all masters of vessels from harboring or employing the said slave. All persons who disregard this notice will be punished as the law directs. Ann Coley. Petersburg, June 8, 1857. Jackson is quite dark, medium size, and well-informed for one in his condition. In slavery, he had been pressed hard. His hire, $10 per month, he was obliged to produce at the end of each month, no matter how much he had been called upon to expend for doctor bills, etc. The woman he called mistress went by the name of Ann Coley, a widow, living near Petersburg. She was very quarrelsome, although a member of the Methodist Church. Jackson, seeing that his mistress was yearly growing harder and harder, concluded to try and better his condition, if possible. Having a free wife in the North, who was in the habit of communicating with him, he was kept fully awake to the love of freedom. The Underground Railroad expense the committee gladly bore. No further record of Jackson was made. Jackson found his poor old father here, where he had resided for a number of years, in a state of almost total blindness, and of course in much parental anxiety about his boys in chains. On the arrival of Jackson, his heart overflowed with joy and gratitude not easily described, as the old man had hardly been able to muster faith enough to believe that he should ever look with his dim eyes upon one of his sons in freedom. After a day or two's tarrying, Jackson took his departure for safer and more healthful localities, her British Majesty's possessions. The old man remained only to feel more keenly than ever the pang of having sons still toiling in hopeless servitude. In less than seven months, after Jackson had shaken off the yoke, to the unspeakable joy of the father, Isaac and Edmondson succeeded in following their brother's example, and were made happy partakers of the benefits and blessings of the Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia. On first meeting his two boys at the Underground Railroad Depot, the old man took each one in his arms, and as looking through a glass darkly, straining every nerve of his almost lost sight, exclaiming, whilst hugging them closer and closer to his bosom for some minutes, in tears of joy and wonder, My son Isaac, is this you? My son Isaac, is this you? 
etc. The scene was calculated to awaken the deepest emotion and to bring tears to eyes not accustomed to weep. Little had the old man dreamed in his days of sadness that he should share such a feast of joy over the deliverance of his sons. But it is in vain to attempt to picture the affecting scene at this reunion, for that would be impossible. Of their slave life, the records contain but a short notice, simply as follows. Isaac is twenty-eight years of age, hearty-looking, well-made, dark color, and intelligent. He was owned by Mrs. Ann Coley, a widow, residing near Petersburg, Virginia. Isaac and Edmondson were to have been sold on New Year's Day, a few days hence. How sad her disappointment must have been on finding them gone may be more easily imagined than described. Edmondson is about twenty-five, a brother of Isaac, and a smart, good-looking young man, was owned by Mrs. Coley also. This is just the class of fugitives to make good subjects for John Bull, thought the committee, feeling pretty well assured that they would make good reports after having enjoyed free air in Canada for a short time. Of course, the committee enjoined upon them very earnestly not to forget their brethren left behind, groaning in fetters, but to prove by their industry, uprightness, economy, sobriety, and thrift, by the remembrance of their former days of oppression and their obligations to their God, that they were worthy of the country to which they were going, and so to help break the bonds of the oppressors and undo the heavy burdens of the oppressed. Similar advice was impressed upon the minds of all travelers passing over this branch of the Underground Railroad. From hundreds thus admonished, letters came affording the most gratifying evidence that the counsel of the committee was not in vain. The appended letter from the youngest brother, written with his own hand, will indicate his feelings and views in Canada. Hamilton, Canada West, March 1, 1858 Mr. Still, dear sir, I have taken the opportunity to inform you your letter came to hand, 27th. I were glad to hear from you and your family. I hope this letter may find you and the family well. I am well myself. My brother join me in love to you and all the friend. I were sorry to hear of the death of Mrs. Freeman. We all must die soon or late. This a date we must all pay. We must prepare for the time she wear a nice lady, dear sir. The all is well and send their love to you. Emmerline have been sick, but is better at this time. I saw the hills the war well and send their love to you. I was sorry to hear that my brother war soul. I am glad that I did come away when I did. God works all the things for the best. He is young, he may get along in the wool. May God bless him. If you have any news from Petersburg, VA, please write me a word when you answer this letter. And if any person came form home, letter me know. Please send me one of your paper that had the undergrands R. Rod. Give my love to Mr. Carter and his family. I am seving with a barber at this time. He have promised to give me the trade. If I can lane, it is much of a gentleman. Mr. Still, sir, I have writing a letter to Mr. Brown of Petersburg, VA. Please read it, and if you think it right, please send it by the mail or by hand, 
you will see how I have written it, the will, know how sent it by the way, this writing of the answer. It you can send it to me. I have told them direct to your care for Ed T. Smith, Philadelphia. I hope it may be right. I promised to write to here. Please write to me soon and let me know if you do send it on right with you did with that ma but the cabot beige. Do not forget to write tell John he might write to me. I am doing as well as I can at this time, but I get no wages. But my board but is satisfied at these hard time and glad that I am here and in good health. Nothing more at this time. Your truly, Edmund Turner. The same writer sent to the corresponding secretary the following warning to slaveholders. At the time these documents were received, slaveholders were never more defiant. The right to trample on the weak in oppression was indisputable. Cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men, slaveholders believed, doubtless, were theirs by divine right. Little dreaming that in less than three short years, therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, in view of the marvelous changes which have been wrought by the hand of the Almighty, this warning to slaveholders from one who felt the sting of slavery as evincing a particular phase of simple faith and Christian charity is entitled to a place in these records. A warning to slaveholders. Well may the southern slaveholders say that holding their fellow men in bondage is no sin, because it is their delight as the Egyptians, so do they. But nevertheless, God in his own good time will bring them out by a mighty hand, as it is recorded in the sacred oracles of truth, that Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands to God, speaking in the positive, shall. And my prayer is to you, O slaveholder, in the name of that God, who in the beginning said, Let there be light, and there was light. Let my people go, that they may serve me. Thereby good may come unto thee and to thy children's children. Slaveholder, have you seriously thought upon the condition yourselves, family and slaves? Have you read where Christ has enjoined upon all his creatures to read his word, thereby that they may have no excuse when coming before his judgment seat? But you say he shall not read his word. Consequently, his sin will be upon your head. I think every man has as much as he can do to answer for his own sins. And now, my dear slaveholder, who with you are bound and fast hastening to judgment, as one that loves your soul repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In the language of the poet, Stop, poor sinner, stop and think before you further go. Think upon the brink of death of everlasting woe. Say, have you an arm like God, that you his will oppose? Fear you not that iron rod with which he breaks his foes, is the prayer of one that loves your souls. Edmund Turner. N.B. The signature bears the name of one who knows and felt the sting of slavery. But now, thanks be to God, I am now where the poisonous breath taints not our air, but every one is sitting under his own vine and fig tree where none dare to make him ashamed or afraid. Edmund Turner, 
formerly of Petersburg, VA. Hamilton, June 22, 1858, C.W. To Mr. William Still, dear sir, a favorable opportunity affords the pleasure of acknowledging the receipt of letters and papers. Certainly in this region they were highly appreciated, and I hope the time may come that your kindness will be reciprocated. We are all well at present, but times continue dull. I also deeply regret the excitement recently on the account of those slaves. You will favor me by keeping me posted upon the subject. Those words written to slaveholder is the thought of one who had suffered, and now I thought it a duty incumbent upon me to cry aloud and spare not, etc., by sending these few lines where the slaveholder may hear. You will still further oblige your humble servant also to correct any inaccuracy. My respects to you and your family and all inquiring friends. Your friend and well-wisher, Edmund Turner. The then impending judgments seen by an eye of faith as set forth in this warning soon fell with crushing weight upon the oppressor, and slavery died. But the old blind father of Jackson, Isaac, and Edmondson still lives and may be seen daily on the streets of Philadelphia, and though halt and lame and blind and poor, doubtless resulting from his early oppression, he can thank God and rejoice that he has lived to see slavery abolished. End of section 28. Recording by Lee Smalley. Wow. <clears throat> Quite a different uh, escape scene here from what we've seen previously. Uh, no shootouts, no deputies getting shot, no sheriff getting shot, no uh, escapees getting injured, etc., but brothers meeting their blind father for the first time. Um, it just dawned on me in listening to this uh, this particular reading, and particularly with the lengthy letters, how articulate that a lot of these escapees were. And I think we don't take notice of that as we should, uh, or understand that a number of these individuals escaping slavery uh, in the Deep South were literate. Uh, very much so, as uh, witnessed by the letters that you heard uh, read, the letter to Mr. Steele, to William Steele, by Edmund Turner, and also the warning to the slaveholders, and uh, which included uh, uh, some poetic uh, refrain in that letter, uh, in that warning. Uh, to the uh, to the slaveholders and uh, calling up on scripture and the history and the scripture relative to slavery and uh, Egypt and what have you uh, quite literate individuals and uh, before we uh, heard that reading we had some callers so callers if you are still interested in having uh coming on with your comment or question, uh, please let us know. Uh, you will also notice in the letter... Hello, do we have a caller on the line? Yes, I'm on the line. I'm just listening. Are you just listening? Okay. You're welcome to do that. Um, the... Um, reward letter 
or poster that Miss Molly or Collie put out, you will notice that she made reference that anyone who did not adhere uh, to that poster would be punished as provided by law. And I think she was making reference to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, where it was illegal to assist uh, any escaped slave. And if you suspected that one was an escaped slave, you were to take them into custody and get them to a magistrate post-haste. However, to counter those laws, that is the Fugitive Slave Act, a number of the northern states passed what they called liberty laws and at the influence of the abolitionists in those states. And the liberty laws counteracted the Fugitive Slave Act. And what the liberty laws did then stated that they would not acknowledge any bounty hunters, as they saw it, uh, attempting to arrest uh, escaped slaves for return to the South. So basically, the fugitive slave law was ignored, and before 1865, then, you had a number of many Civil War skirmishes, uh, which led all the way up to uh, John Brown and his um, assault on the federal arsenal. Uh, It also um, uh, was a forerunner to bloody Kansas, uh, the Kansas-Missouri border wars, um, abolitionists versus slaveholders. Charles Sumner, who was beaten nearly to death with a cane in the United States Senate, uh, was a backer of the liberty laws. I should say that was on the floor of Congress. And he was an abolitionist. That is Charles Sumner. And, uh, again, nearly beaten to death on the floor of Congress because of his support. And what we had back in those days then was a lot of white-on-white crime, that is, white abolitionists being opposed to the white slaveholders um, and caused a lot of friction, uh, many civil war, white-on-white crime, a lot of shootouts, uh, a lot of political differences, obviously, uh, between the two. And again, I want to—I can't uh, overemphasize uh, the literacy that was shown amongst escapees, not only in this uh, section of our reading tonight, but in previous sections. Um, one of which, who was articulate, was uh, one of the five black individuals who accompanied uh, John Brown on his raid to. Harper's Ferry, or on Harper's Ferry, and left the only account of that raid in a book that he uh, wrote after his escape to Canada, 
uh, assisted by Mary Shad there in Canada, who was publishing a herself was an escaped slave and was publishing uh, a newspaper there. And uh, Mr. Anderson wrote his account. Uh, Perry Anderson, I believe his name was, wrote his account uh, of uh, the raid on Harper's Ferry. And uh, I want to back up a minute. Uh, Miss Shad might have been born free, um, and she might have been uh, forced to retire to Canada because of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which in turn caused a number of black folks to be kidnapped and taken to the South, who were freeborn, taken to the South and sold in slavery. Uh, Frederick Douglass even had to get up out of here for a minute uh, because of the threat of being arrested and uh, sent to the South or returned to slavery. Uh, many of your outspoken uh, and vocal abolitionists were put in danger due to that fugitive uh, slave act. Uh, so they were, and many of the free blacks were extremely supportive of the fugitives. They housed them, they employed them, they gave them legal counsel, they put money in their pocket, they put clothes on their back. Uh, as you do to the least of these, you also do to me. Uh, so they were living out uh, their Christian principles that they had uh, learned since. Uh, coming over from Africa and having their original religion stripped from them, etc. And uh, they, um, in, in violation of the existing laws, they put out advertisements to the slaves to escape uh, through pamphlets that were circulated throughout the slave-holding uh, country, uh, lured these uh, people held in bondage to come north and were guaranteed to be provided assistance from a very well-organized uh, machinery known as the Underground Railroad. Uh, very well-organized in terms of routes. Uh, people, both white and black, um, provided transportation, clothing, food, shelter, etc. And you will recall and understand that it was illegal in the South to have any kind of mutual aid societies. Uh, and these mutual aid societies, um, those that were underground in the South and particularly those that were above ground in the North, were a force to be reckoned with. Because we're talking about armed mutual aid societies, okay? They had powder and ball and uh, weren't afraid to use them. Um, although they were an arm of the church, in a lot of instances, uh, they met fire with fire. So those Southerners who came up here, these bounty hunters, 
coming up here, and we're going to retake the escapees by force. We're met by some very stringent AME African uh, Methodist minister and deacons and Episcopalians who strongly identified with their African heritage and were very prideful of their race. Um, so they met fire with fire when then folks coming up here out of the south, these bounty hunters, which must have really terrified them. And some of them, and the greatest number of them actually, uh, returned to the south empty-handed. Not only could they recapture those escapees, they couldn't catnap any free blacks to take them back and sell them off into slavery. Uh, so we're talking about, uh, you know, the Black Panther Party probably having their roots in these mutual aid societies um, that were established back in the day. A number of these mutual aid societies were attacked uh, by the white establishment. They attempted to pass laws uh, stating that they had to have so much money in reserve, they had to have this kind of structure, that kind of structure, uh, etc. But the mutual aid societies prevailed. Um, through these mutual aid societies, uh, handling their own money, they were able to establish insurance companies, um, banking interests, etc., create millionaires amongst these black enterprises. And I'm told that there's only one left today, and I believe that's in Atlanta, Georgia. Might be Atlanta Life. If anybody's got any information on that, let me know. Uh, there were banks in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina area. You also had the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. Uh, there was an entrepreneur who was born in, uh, by the name of John Merrick, that's M-E-R-R-I-C-K, born September 7th, 1859, and died in, eight, in 1919, was an African-American entrepreneur born in Clinton, North Carolina, and he found that he was the founder of the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, born in slavery, raised by a single mother, began working in, uh, towards his entrepreneurship in barbershops, involved the community in his business, uh, really didn't try to do that without uh, community support. So Mr. Merrick, just one of many uh black entrepreneurs coming up out of slavery and getting a foothold in uh, mutual aid societies and uh, starting out working in barbershops, probably sweeping up, cleaning up, shining shoes and what have you, uh, born to and raised by a single mother in slavery. 
just one of the many stories that you can read about, know about it, to keep up with the gift of freedom. And you want to learn about our heroes and so that we can emulate those heroes and continue that legacy. Um, as much as that legacy and the attempts to emulate those individuals are being chomped at today through the chipping away of the um, Voter Rights Act and other civil rights legislation. I wanted to remind you also to visit us or join us this Thursday as we speak to Leslie Joy Allen and about the Poor Little Girls. It's a play, a musical that's going to be uh, read simultaneously all over these United States. And that's relative to the four young ladies who were killed in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 in the bombing of the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church there in Birmingham. Condoleezza Rice, Eric Holder, they're going to be joining a panel in Birmingham. And... Um, and joining us will be um, Leslie Joy, Condoleezza Rice. Uh, as part of that panel, she was a childhood friend of one of the uh, four girls that lost their lives there in the Birmingham bombing, 1963. Uh, you'll recall also that there were actually five girls and one of those uh, five girls survived. And um, Martin Luther King had a children's march planned for that time two weeks prior to the speech on Washington, or in Washington, that was recently uh, celebrated. Um, commemoration there in Washington, D.C., the 50th anniversary. Um, and he had a, um, the 28th of August, there will be a commemoration. And then on September 15th, uh, there were uh, two black male figures killed. Uh, and then the church was bombed. A lot of violence uh, leading up to that church bombing. Uh, and uh, the belief now is that these kids were killed in retaliation for the Children's March uh, that was held there in Birmingham. And uh, a number of children, there was mass incarceration of those children. Uh, the money for their bail was provided uh, by uh, the Rockefellers, 
by way of MLK. And that gave MLK uh, the inspiration uh, in his speech there at Washington in reference to the promissory note that the United States, the government, owes uh, black folks. And at that time, during that speech, Mahalia Jackson was on stage prompting and reminding Martin to tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And so what became part of that speech then was the I Have a Dream speech, which was not part of his scripted speech. The speech was somewhat impromptu, urged by Mahalia, and some folks say that it was divinely inspired to give that I Have a Dream speech. Again, was not part of his written notes, was not part of his uh, scripted speech. And uh, it was Mahalia Jackson, who apparently had some conversation with Martin prior to uh, his speech that day relative to the dream. So it was on his mind. It was on his mind. So, again, I want you to join us Thursday with uh, Leslie Joy Allen, who will be joining us here on the Guest of Freedom. Uh, we're out of time, as I see by the clock on the wall. I want to wish everyone a good evening, and I'm going to say good night. Good night, everybody. <laughs>